Well, if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we are in our last week of 1 Peter. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And this week we're looking at the truth that uh, it really takes a whole group of people. It takes everybody pulling our oars all together in order to lead us to having hope in a hopeless world. Uh, yesterday, I got to see this uh, just firsthand as all of the parts and pieces worked together in our church for someone who was in a hopeless situation, uh, worked together so that hope may be seen in that. It was, of course, a, a funeral. We had a funeral here yesterday, and over the last, uh, well, about a week or so, a little more than a week, um, one of our uh, one of our uh, church members got a phone call that their uh, son had passed away unexpectedly. And what a lot of people didn't get to see is what I get to see just kind of from my, from my chair is I, I get to see all of the working pieces go into place so that this family and their friends and their hopelessness could be cared for and hope could be shepherded into this situation. And so Eric, who's our senior pastor at Norfolk, he uh, was like gone to go meet with this family and help figure out and care for them and work with them. In the background, there were, uh, was a whole group of uh, administrative and office staff and pastoral staff that was making sure that everything was taken care of, both in his absence as well as to care for this family and then on top of that, coordinating everything so that we could gather with them and celebrate uh, the life of Brent and everything uh, with their family. And then in all of that, I walked in yesterday at 10 a.m. and uh, their life group had sprung into action, helping provide food and meals all week and care for this family. And then I walked in and I said, what can I do? And there was, there was nothing to do. <laughs> It was, it was, I mean, it was a funeral, but it was awesome, if you know what I mean. But they were at every door waiting to care and every person who came in and uh, tables are still actually over there kind of bare, but set up with things celebrating this life. And I was, I was sitting there in the service where then all of these uh, friends gathered together and family gathered together and uh, uh, and I was watching as people were grieving and our pastor was bringing hope and people were processing together. And I thought this, this is a, a picture of exactly what Peter has been talking about through the book of first Peter. Like this is, this is what it looks like. For God's called out people to gather together both in celebration and in suffering and all of the pieces that we don't always get to see to know that when I fall, there's someone there to catch me. And when I stumble, there's someone there to help me cripple along until I get my feet and get recovered. That this is the church in Action, And this is what Peter is trying to get the church to begin to understand in the book of 1 Peter of what it means to lead one another to hope 
in a hopeless situation. We've learned over the last few weeks that Peter's uh, uh, audience that he was writing to in the book of 1 Peter, they weren't living in like the joy of having everything going well for them. In fact, it was the beginning in history of a time of severe persecution if you called yourself a Christian. Like being drugged from your home and all your stuff being taken away and being crucified just like Christ was. And at the very beginning of this process of persecution, and Peter, who himself has endured this for, well, since he's followed Christ, uh, in the very beginning, is writing to this group of believers and saying, listen, here's how you suffer well through this. And this is not a lone ranger mission, but rather everyone all together leading one another to hope. In fact, look at how he begins in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Okay, so Peter weighs what he's about to say with like every spiritual qualification possible, but all of those things that have been found in 1 Peter so far. That he opened up 1 Peter in chapter 1 about the beautiful favor of God who through Jesus Christ has purchased us a living hope in salvation that is undefiled and imperishable and unfading, that God himself is keeping in heaven for you. That you yourself in this beautiful, uh, in this beautiful glory that's going to be revealed are now called and made into a royal priesthood that God has marked as his own. That he has created those who are followers of Christ to be the very light of the gospel of God in this dark world and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. That even into chapter 2, in, in our suffering, that we, we proclaim Jesus Christ and his goodness and God's goodness in everything we do, just as Christ does. Whether it's in a government we don't agree with or in a system of authority that we don't understand or value or in a relationship that we aren't doing that well in or in a work context that we just feel out of place or whatever it would be that in every way we would look to what God has done in us and be used to show everyone around us the beauty of the glory of God, the unfading glory. And Peter is writing to them saying, listen, I'm telling the leaders, the elders, the pastors among you, and he's putting all of his apostolic weight behind it as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in all of the things that I've described to you of what is going to be Revealed, And now he's going to tell the elders, the pastors, the leaders of the church, here's what you ought to do. And here's what you ought not to do or the reasons not to do it. Now, I, I tell you all that because I promise if you're in here today and you're like, I am not a pastor of a church. This is totally going to apply to you still. 
Because in just a little bit, everyone gets brought back in. I mean, just look down at verse 5. It says, all of you be... uh, 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 Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, right? So we're going to all be brought back in, in verse 5. But if you're in here today and you're not a pastor, you're staring at one right now. That's what you're doing. And so you need to know, as a follower of Christ, what pastors are called to do, commanded to do from Scripture, because you yourselves are those who, in this moment and in your life, as a member of a church, if you are, are submitting your life to a group of people that God has called out to lead you spiritually. You need to know what in the world we're supposed to be led to do. In fact, the reason why Peter says, I exhort the elders among you, is because to be real, pastors need exhortation often. Exhorting is, is this weird word that kind of means like encouragement, but also like strong encouragement, like I'm encouraging you to do the right thing. You see, you'll never meet a pastor who is, uh, well, over-encouraged in his life. Now, you'll meet a pastor who's been overly passive-aggressively told what ought to be done and not done in his life. But you'll never meet a pastor who's been overly encouraged in his life. I promise to you, I promise to you, you cannot encourage a pastor too much. In fact, even in this text, you can imagine the leaders of those who are in this church, these these churches that Peter is writing to, who are coming to them and asking, why is this happening? Why am I suffering? Why is my job being taken away? And just the weight that is felt on top of all of those things and then, the, and then just the occasional thing like, I don't know, someone's sitting in my chair and they shouldn't, or whatever people do in church. We, you don't do that, but sometimes people do. And, um, and all of those things that, that just take their sleep sometimes when they're out of whack. And you can imagine that in this process, the really heavy things that are going on, and Peter is exhorting the entire church and telling the, the, uh, the, the elders of the church, like, encouraging them. Because they, man, they just need encouragement. But the other part of exhortation, that kind of encouraging you in the right direction, is because you may not know this, and I hope this isn't brand new information, but there is no such thing as a perfect pastor. Now, Gary's pretty close. But still, he has some issues. One or two. Not many. You know what they are? They're, I'm just joking. I'm not going to tell you. Right? But you will not find a church with a perfect pastor. You will not find a perfect church. We know that. And you can just look at who's leading the church and go, man, he's got some issues. Because we all have issues. Like there are, Just like there are things in your life that scar you with your job. Good experiences and bad experiences that on this side of heaven are carried with you that make you walk with a limp the rest of your life. Pastors carry that too. Years ago, um, I got bad knees because I had a different job. And so two months ago, uh, they just like my knees all, always hurt, just always hurt. And uh, a couple of months ago, I thought I'd be uh, brave and go on a long walk. And my knee has not stopped hurting since 
then, and I've been limping around since then. I finally put away my pride, and I'm going to see a doctor about it because I'm like, man, it's not getting better by itself. I don't know what's going on. But, but my point is, like, just as we each have limps through our life, through previous injuries, you don't have to go all, like, psychological to figure out. Well, pastors do too. And they need encouragement. In fact, Peter knows this. He, he has been walking with a limp the rest of it. Can you imagine Peter going around to the cities that he goes on? They're like, oh, you're Peter? Like, yeah. Hey, you remember that time that that girl called you out, that teenage girl, and you ran away and cussed at her, you know, denying Jesus? Like, that's, that's what happened in the, anyways, when Jesus was arrested. Just read the Bible. It's awesome. My, my, my point is, like, can you imagine how that, how that bears on him? And in the same way, like, they, they need exhortation because they need encouragement, and they're just simply not perfect. In fact, in just a minute, we're going to see a good way, a very practical way of how to make your pastor's job easy. And it's not don't have any problems. That's not it. But rather, in just a little bit, we'll see it's just... Let's be godly. That's my last point. But here's my point, right? Look how Peter opens up in this text. He says, I exhort the elders among you because, man, they, they deeply need exhortation. And here's how they're supposed to act. Here's how they're supposed to lead. Look at verse 2. In fact, in verse 2 and verse 3, Peter's going to give us three, here's what you ought to do, and here's not the reason to do it. In fact, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And here's how that looks. Exercising oversight, looking over it, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. That those who lead the church are to lead the church in a way, are to lead the church because they want to, because they desire to be there. That they ought to lead the church in the direction that God is calling them, not because there is someone who is twisting their arm to go in that direction. Not only that, he continues on and he says, uh, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, I want you to know, um, and this is uh, how, I, how we talk, go through this text without any type of, uh, I don't know, not, by seeming selfless, I am a pastor, so I know like how this works. It's my job. I want you to know I absolutely have shameless gain that I'm going for when it comes to being a pastor. Absolutely, unequivocally, I have an agenda with my life. In fact, look down at verse 4, and you'll see the gain that a pastor can get if he serves faithfully the, the chief shepherd that he is an under-shepherd for. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, verse 4, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I want you to know that what I battle through as a pastor, what your pastors battle through at this church, what Eric, our senior pastor, battles through is not so that one day we can receive recognition, but rather the shameless recognition of God in Jesus Christ receiving the crown of a well done good and faithful servant enter into my rest that is a shameless thing that I am after that when I get to heaven Jesus says you did so much to bring me glory 
It doesn't always mean big crowns. You did so much to bring me glory. Has nothing to do with material gain. You did so much to bring me glory. Y'all, I'm going after that and I am shameless about it. But you know what shameful gain looks like in ministry? It looks like the opposite of all those things. It looks like um, someone who would serve in such a way so that they could be seen. Or it looks like someone who uh, enters into an argument just to be right. It looks like someone who would position themselves as superior over everyone and allow everyone to know that. You see, there is a way to pastor in a way that is shamefully gaining And what God is calling shepherds to do in this text, and now what as members of the church you now know is a requirement of us, is to see whether or not we are living in a way that is for shameless gain, for the glory of God in Jesus Christ, or whether or not we are living and leading a ministry that is for shameful gain, just to simply be seen by others. In fact, he continues on, not just... Uh, Not under compulsion. In other words, no one's twisting their arm, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Man, it is really, really easy to manipulate spiritual conviction in order to get your own way. You don't believe me? Just hang out with a two or three year old, right? Uh, my son is going through this thing right now where um, he just uh, he just likes to scream for mom and dad instead of sleep. It's awesome, you know. And uh, so he will uh, uh, he knows that bedtime is coming, and I'm excited about that because that means mine is not far behind. And so as soon as his feet in his little zippity zip hit the mattress in his crib. We're going to keep him in that thing as long as we can because he can't get out of it quite yet because his arm's in a zippity-zip. It's just, it's cute. So anyways, um, uh, as soon as his feet hit that mattress, man, that, that boy knows how to spiritually convict, right? Like, Daddy, Dad, I'm scared, you know? It takes, noth- it takes nothing to spiritually manipulate through emotional means we're we're wired in many senses to respond to that like it takes nothing to overrun somebody did you know that it's easy just keep talking until they stop talking and you get your way we well we all know how to do that don't we but rather instead of leading that way god is going to call the pastor to lead in a way that is servant leadership That is, leadership through example. In fact, that's how he he continues, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The way of leadership in an elder's life is not do what I say, but rather see what I do. And there's a difference. Now, granted, if you ever work at a church, you got to do what your boss says, whether they're a pastor or not. You don't get to pull the spiritual card and say, well, that doesn't work like that. But rather the call of an elder is to be one who stands up and says, you want to see what Jesus looks like? 
You want to see what it would look like to suffer well in this situation? Man, look at me. Now, when you look as a church member, you know what you're going to find? Someone who needs encouragement and exhortation because they are not perfect. But rather the call of a pastor, the call of an elder is to be one to whom to the community of faith, they are, they are a living example of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Not a perfect one, but a godly one. And there's a difference. Now in the process of this, Something that is often faced are those who, as, a, as, a, as an elder or a pastor, are those who aren't as mature in their faith acting as if the pastor is perfect. Or is perfect. <laughs> in the, there are groups of people that, that generally, generally tend to feel as if their sole agenda is to correct the pastor. And by the way, if you're a first-time guest, you just happen to come where the text is, right? I'm, I'm, this is not like chosen by... We're gonna, this is just what the text says, and I promise to always preach the Bible and with what's next, no matter what. So if this is your first time, like it seems self-serving that the pastor would preach on being a pastor and what people ought to respond It's just what the text says, man, so we're just going for it. But there are groups of people, and I was one, that seem to keep it as their agenda to make sure the pastor knows exactly what's wrong with their life and what's going on. Uh, One of the the things that I get to do with young married couples, uh, actually before they're married, we, we require them to go through premarital counseling, and... One of the fun parts for me is for those couples that uh, here at at the church, we require them to go through eating counseling, uh, and I make it an aim and an effort to meet with them one-on-one a number of times uh, to go through uh, some pastoral counseling as well prior to the wedding date so we can just talk about things, and then I get a funny story, at least that'll come out during the ceremony, and everyone likes that. So, one of, the, one of the beautiful moments in the life of a, uh, in the process of uh, premarital counseling is um, I always ask the question, you know, uh, wh- why, why, do you, why do you love her? I always ask the guy first, you know, and they just kind of fumble through because I do, you know. And um, then I ask the girl, I say, okay, so why do you love him? And then like, like 35 minutes later, um, I, I kind of help wind it down and say, bro, you need to work on that before the, before the wedding day. And uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a teaching moment um, for so many things. But one of, the, one of the things that that brings out is the fact that um, those who are younger in marriage don't communicate to one another as effectively as those who are older in marriage. Or rather, if, you've been, if you're older and have been married for a while, you're like, I don't know, we're still working on it. Yeah, but you're better at it than when you were like married for six months, right? You're a little bit better at it. So I take that as a moment, and I begin to walk through the process of what it means to be young and married. And when the golden years of marriage, the years where mar- marital satisfaction as highest recorded and continues to spike when that begins. 
and I walk them through the process that generally everything's awesome until about six months to a year and a half. And then you realize, I don't know what in the world I married into. Maybe you've been there before or you haven't gotten there yet. It is natural and it is coming. And then you kind of begin to work through a process that around year three to five, there's another kind of dip in marital satisfaction because generally, not this didn't happen with us, uh, it took us a lot longer, but generally around three to five years, you realize the dog can't giggle, you know, and uh, maybe a baby would be nice. And for some people, they can just time it like that. And so that brings a whole new level of stress. And then around year five to seven, you've heard the phrase, the seven-year itch before. It's a common phrase to describe that season. Sometimes seven to ten years, there becomes another tension. Because generally, uh, if God has given you the gift of having babies, you can have another two or three or whatever at that time. And that adds stress. You haven't slept in six or seven years since you've had kids. Uh, Things at work are starting to progress because you've been at your job or in your profession for a number of years, which means that you've uh, moved up a little bit, but maybe not your pay. I mean, this is what happens when I meet with couples who've been married seven to 10 years. Life costs more than I make, and I don't know what to do. And now you're in your 30s, and now you're having this weird midlife crisis or whatever, or quarter-life crisis. And like, you guys have been through this. You've been married for a while. And then it gets even better. Around year 15, 16, your brand new baby that you had at two is now 13. Right? And now you get paid back all of the things that, your te- that you did to your parents when you were a teenager. But don't worry. There's probably one behind them that's going to hit it in the next couple of years. So then sometime between your 15 and 20, you make it through all that. And your babies are out of the house, off to college, off in the military, or whatever they do, until they come back. Because that's just how it works. But then at 20 years, if and you get married in the U.S., average 27, 29 years old... You're 47 and 49, and your parents are beginning to need some help. And so now there's an added level of stress around year 19 or 20, all the way up through about 25 into the late 20 years, where you're beginning to not only care for the, your kids that are kind of out of the nest, but also those kids that are your parents that are on the other end. And then somewhere around year 30, marriage is awesome. Right? Like, I've obviously not been married for 30 years, but marital satisfaction at 30 years is where it is at. And I tell that to that little young couple, and I say, so guess what? In 30 years, you're going to have this thing figured out. 30 years. One of my favorite things, that's an encouragement, right? If you're not married for 30 years and things are hard, Welcome to the club. It's just normal sometimes, right? Like, you'll get there eventually in another 25 years, you know? Um, but I go through that process with them, and then I ask the question, um, tell me about marriages that you love and revere and respect. And I encourage them to get with a couple that's been married for longer than 30 years who loves Jesus to help you figure out your early years of marriage. Because there's something that those who have been walking through marriage a lot longer know that you don't know and that you can't know and that you won't know until you've walked through it. And for those who love Jesus and are good and open to counsel and uh, young married couples, it's a beautiful thing. 
to get patted on the shoulder by someone who's been married for a while and go, yep, you're going to have to figure that out and walk away. (laughs) It's a beautiful moment. Now, I'm telling you all that to say that there is a group of in the church that often needs an extra reminder of what it means to put your life under an elder at a church. And I'm just going to let the Bible speak for itself here in verse, uh, uh, continuing on in verse 5. Peter writes, Likewise, you who are younger. Now, young has two connotations in, in, in Peter. It's those who are young in the faith and those who are, who are uh, just by years, younger. Those who are younger and really focusing, honestly, if we're being true to the word, literally, those who are younger just by age in the church, those who are younger, be subject to the elders. This, this extra reminder that like when you're young and you're still processing and you're still developing and you are all over the place theologically, you need an extra reminder that God has placed people in your life to talk through and process. I remember what it was like when I was a younger Christian and I also was all over the place. But in the process of that, thinking that those above you just don't know, oh, it's like I tell teenagers over and over who lament my mom doesn't understand about my boyfriend. Now, your mom not only had a boyfriend, but also made him marry her. She knows more about this than you, right? And in that process where you get to walk through that, those who are younger, y'all, if there's anything I could exhort you to do as young followers of Christ, you figure out what in your heart rebels against the spiritual authority that's over you at church, and you put that thing to death. You will be so thankful when you're in your 40s and your 50s and your 60s and your 30s, or for some of you in your 20s that are next. That Peter is looking at them and going, man, just, just, just y- y'all especially, humble yourselves under your elders. Now, if you're in here today and you've said, I'm not an elder and, uh, or a pastor, those words and terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament. Uh, I'm not an elder, I'm not a pastor, and I'm uh, not young by any means. I've been a follower of Christ for a while, and also I have a few decades underneath uh, my feet. Then Peter wraps everybody together in verse 5 and now says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now here's what this looks like practically. When we as a church are all pulling our rows to are pulling our oars as we row together to shepherd hope into lives that are living in a hopeless situation. Lives that are living in a hopeless culture where we look around and just go, I don't know what in the world is going on right now. When life does not go as it seems to be or as someone promised it would be or as we hoped it would be or as our intentions 
would have turned out. It looks like tragedy happening and those who are the spiritual authority in your life now able to step in. It looks like a bunch of people working behind the scenes to care for you and make sure you know the love of God in Jesus Christ through their actions. It looks like everyone coming together to circle around and figure out how can we care for this family and show them Jesus' love. It looks like somebody standing up and giving a message of hope in a hopeless situation where something was taken away long before anyone thought that it would be. It looks like the church gathering, gathering together both in celebration and in lament as something difficult happened because the beauty of the church is that we all now work together pulling our rows on this ship towards God's glory that as we extend our lives out in loving one another and humility and serving one another and humbling ourselves underneath the spiritual authority that God gives, that we are all growing and going closer to God in Jesus Christ. In this process, I would ask you the question, If you're feeling as if you are far from God, have you yourself submitted your life to the authority of the local church? Now you'll see in here, this doesn't mean that I get to tell you how to do your taxes. That's not it. don't, Don't ask me about that. I don't know anything about that. This doesn't mean that um, the church has authority over I don't know whether you homeschool or send your kid to private school or public school or anything like that. But rather, have you placed your life in relationship with a local congregation that is seeking after Jesus Christ and coming around you to compel you to be more like him? In fact, if you're in here today and... You have been coming for just a while. I want you to know that that's what, that's what this thing is all about. Like that's, that's why God gives authority to elders. To shepherd you to be more like God in Jesus Christ. To be someone who you could look to and say, that's an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Not someone who's perfect, but rather someone who's, who's called and who's working and following Christ. And if you are not in a community of faith, you've not committed your life to this this community of faith that's following after Jesus, you simply will not grow as God has called you to grow. Whether it's this community of faith or another one, God has called you to grab an oar and begin to row together so that when others who begin to waver in their faith and in the hopelessness that this world will give because it's fallen, that you are there to catch and to run forward. And in the same way that when, when you fall, when you live in hopelessness, that your community of faith is around you to gather together and say, I got you, you're walking with a limp, but I'm with you in this moment. In fact, right now I'd ask you, if you haven't joined the church, today is a beautiful day to find out more about that. If, it's, if you've been on the edge about whether or not I should do this thing, I want you to know you will not find a perfect church here. Man, you will not find a perfect location pastor. You will not find a perfect senior pastor. But you will find a bunch of people that are faithfully going to point you to Jesus Christ over and over and over and over.
So that being said, let's go into to a time of response and pray and ask the Lord to help us understand even more what it means to submit our lives to being a part of God's called out people. If you're not a follower of Christ, I'll talk to you in just a minute. But if you are a follower of Christ, I'd ask you, have you, have you joined your life to a group of people who you can submit your, your, your spiritual life to, to begin to shepherd you to be more like Christ? In fact, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I wonder if today you would allow the Lord to wrestle with your heart about that issue. Like I, I, I just, I, I want you to know you, you, you won't grow as a follower of Christ. I mean, really, you're designed to do this thing in community. And if you haven't, would you just spend some time asking the Lord, is this the place you want me to join? As you're talking with the Lord about that, if you aren't a follower of Christ, I, I want to share with you what those who are Christians celebrate, why we would even give up our Sundays and time throughout the week to gather together with those who believe in Jesus isn't because we just want some people around us to help us through difficulty, although that does happen. It isn't because we want to get up early on a Sunday and um, listen to somebody who's going to try to teach us God's word that we would be more in love with Jesus and more like him than before we came on a Sunday. Although that, that, that will happen at this church. But if you're not a follower of Christ, the reason why Christians do that, why they give their life to seeing God's glory made known in the local church, serving one another, giving, clothing themselves in humility and serving those around them is, is because that's exactly what God did for them in Jesus Christ. And they as Christians now bear the, his name. In other words, if you're not a follower of Christ, the reason why Christians do that is because God humbled himself, becoming the form of a servant in Jesus Christ and gave his life as a ransom for those who were far off and brought them back near. And I want you to know, if you're not a Christian in this room, Today, the same invitation that God gave to those around you who are Christians, he extends to you as well. That you who are far off, I want you to know that God loves you so much that he gave his very life for you so that you could be brought into his family. And he didn't do it because you're perfect. You're a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he didn't do that because there wasn't any alternative. No, see, the consequences of sin is death and separation from God. 
But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so God has off, is offering you the same gift as all Christians around you that you who are far off would be brought near because of Jesus. And so I'd ask you, if you're not a Christian, not to begin to talk to the Lord about whether or not I need to join this local body of believers, but whether or not I, I would respond to God's gift and offer of salvation. In fact, if that's you and right now, you'd say, yeah, I, I want to receive the gift that God gives in salvation. I've, I've, I'm not a Christian, but I want to become one. Then right now, why don't you just talk to God just as those around you are, but you tell him something like, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sin. And that he was raised to life and you offer me new life because of him. Tell him, I, tell God, I, would you forgive me of my sin? God, I accept your gift of salvation. If that's you, in just a moment, we're going to close out with a song. And I would love to talk with you afterwards. And during this closing song, as we sing all together, for those who have not joined and would love to, I'll be up front afterwards. I would love to talk with you about joining this church. In fact, if there's any other prayer need, feel free to come grab myself or Gary. We'll be up here. We'd love to talk with you. But during this last closing song, those who are followers of Christ at this church, why don't we keep in mind the beautiful reality that God's called us together? Why don't we turn this song into a prayer of praise back to God, thinking about how thankful we are that he allows us to gather together in this place, in this time, under his very word. Let's pray and then let's respond. Jesus, we thank you for being so good to us. I pray that you would allow us in this time to respond to you. God, give us by your spirit the courage and conviction to walk out of here more in love with Jesus and more like him than when we came in. Lord, I thank you for the beauty and clarity of your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to submit our lives to you. God, I thank you for this beautiful church that you've called me to. Lord, I thank you for every person that you've brought here. God, I pray that you would continue to multiply our group, that we would make your name known, serving Hampton Roads in order to change the world. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.